We're turning back today to the passage that already we've read from, that Second Samuel and the chapter 21. Taking the topic, what keeps an old soldier going? What keeps an old soldier going? And we'll read again from Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 15, 16, and 17. Moreover, the Philistines had yet warred again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him, and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. And Ishbi Benob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed three hundred shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. With the word of God open before us, we'll bow together in a further word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we come before Thee with this instructive passage, illustrative of needs and of realities that are round about us in this day. We come to Thy Word, looking at David when he has moved on in years and when abilities have lessened. And we want to ask the question, when that happens to us, are we no longer useful to Thee? Have we no function to fulfill, no role to perform, no avenue along which we can bring glory to Thy name. And as we look at the incident that Scripture has penned for us, part of the revelation of Thy will and plan, we pray the lessons we will derive will be of great benefit, encouragement, and will militate for the advancement of the church of God in this day. Come and answer our prayer today. Do us all good. Speak to us through the Word, not only those who are on the elderly side of the spectrum, but on the younger and everywhere in between. There's a Word we believe for us today. Give us ears to hear it, hearts to apply it, hands to fulfill it. We ask in our Savior's blessed and holy name. Amen. David is locked in combat with one of the sons of the giants, and we have the name here given in the passage as Ishbi Benob. But while we can look back in David's life to those very heady days in the valley of Elah, in that place where one smooth stone was enough 
and one swing of a sling was sufficient to get the job done, that was then. Today, things are different. David is very far from being a youth any longer. He is aged. And so in the battle that we read off here in 2 Samuel 21, we find that the veteran warrior David, he becomes weary. Ishbibanob, that wicked mutant, he senses the vulnerability of the king. And he's filled with confidence. And he marches on and he presses home his advantage. And that assault in which he engages is furious and unrelenting. David is on the defensive by this stage, only able to parry and block out one blow after another, and weakening and conscious of it, he cannot hold out much longer. About to be overcome, David is. But then, Abishai steps in, and he quickly strikes and kills the giant. And by this, God's man is rescued. Now, as we gaze on the scene here and take the various elements of it, work our way through them as it's painted for us in 2 Samuel 21, verse 15 to 22, I believe we can take instruction down a number of useful and beneficial avenues. We can learn lessons from an old soldier here as we look at this passage. The first lesson we're going to put the spotlight on is one about value, a lesson about value. Essentially, what we're saying is this, we don't lose our value when we lose certain abilities. We don't lose our value when we forfeit certain abilities that once we have. Reality is, and reality does kick in in all of our lives, and it may well be the case in your life that you're saying, well, I can't serve the Lord in some of the ways that I used to be able to serve Him. And that could be a source of frustration. That might make you feel a bit of a failure. That brings grief and heaviness to your heart, that today you can no longer do as much visible work and energetic work for the church, for the cause of Christ, that you used to be able to. You've maybe had to give up that teaching position. Maybe for reasons of ill health, you cannot even be present as regularly at the gathering of the saints as we have today. The state of your body will not allow what your mind and what your heart so desperately wants to do. And if that's your case, then verse 17 is for you. The last part of it says, Then the men of David swear unto them, saying, Thou shalt Do no more out with us to battle. You have put in your shift, David. We can't, for your safety, for our morale, we cannot have you coming out into the first rank along with your army again. Now, here is a man, David, who still had plenty of fight left in him. His heart was still as large as a lion's. His mind was bulging with strategies and military maneuvers, but really, he could no longer be in the fight. Now, was that a sign that he had begun to lose his value? That he could no longer be a contributing member of his nation? Not at all. 
The very reason that his men prevailed upon him here in verse 17, not to return with them in the ranks to the battle, the very reason they did that was because he was valuable. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. David, you're still an inspiration to us. You're still the light of our nation, humanly speaking. Your presence among the people of God is something that's too precious for us to lose. And so we're trying to safeguard this by keeping you in a safe area. People who love Christ, of course, contribute far more by what they are than by what they do. It's very shallow if we come and fall into the trap of thinking, well, because he or she isn't as active as I am, as somebody else is, then they're of lesser value. Let's not get into the situation where we start despising somebody because in our estimation, they're not as public, not as much in the forefront of all of the battle and the work of God as we think that we are. We might be doing something visible, praise God if we are, but even that in itself is not the measure of our true worth. You don't have to be the minister or an elder or a committee member or a Sunday school teacher to be a valuable part of the work of God in this place. In fact, down through the years of the history of Jesus Christ's church on earth, the greatest impact has been made by intercessors, people of prayer. Many of them can be so often shielded from view, you would hardly know they're in existence or doing what they're doing. They're maybe shut up in their closets in Matthew chapter 6 style territory, but they are dedicated in there to the art of prayer. They are pleading for the success of Jesus' cause on earth. They are taking His promise, and they're saying, Lord, You have said, I will build my church, and we are holding You to that, and we are pleading that promise, and they draw down the blessing from heaven. I think of American Presbyterian minister and missionary, David Brainard, had a real burden for the Native Americans among the Delaware Indians. He said that he believed the ministry of intercession is perhaps the most unwanted and neglected ministries of all. It is a service unnoticed by many, belittled by some, chosen by few. And he went on to explain just why that is. He says it's because it has no glamour or recognition. Aside, it's not a profitable ministry to be engaged in because intercession calls for stillness, pain, suffering, hunger, disruptiveness, and agony. It is taxing and toiling with God for others. But then he says, but whoever answers the call of God to the ministry of intercession can have the glorious assurance that they have a place at the very heart of all service and ministry. 
And that was the place that Brainard occupied, that William Carey, Jim Elliot, many other men, women of God, occupied down through the years. Samuel Chadwick, in his dying prayer to his students, he told them, marshal the forces of prayer. That's the vital thing. And again, anybody who enters a worship service, we're always carrying with us as we come to the house of God so many cubic meters of spiritual atmosphere. And if we come to worship and we're filled with bitterness in our heart and unbelief and we come in the wrong spirit, then what do we do? We drain the spiritual climate in the place. We have an impact and it's a negative one. But if we come filled with God's Holy Spirit, though we may not even necessarily speak a word or too many words, we can charge the service with love and with joy and with holy expectancy just by our very presence. Lord, make us all people like that who will do serious business with God as a result. A child once passed the comment that she believed that Principal Rainey went to heaven every single night because he was so happy every single day. Principal Rainey, in turn, from the New College in Edinburgh, he went into the children's territory, pulled in a picture or a metaphor from a child's chorus, and by that, he was expressing why he had such Christian joy. Joy, he said, is a flag flowing from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Have we ever stopped press pause on our way to this house and asked ourselves, what am I bringing? What am I contributing to the fellowship of the saints of God today? Will I be introducing a little bit of heavenly sunshine into somebody's life? Or am I in the mood that I'm in? Am I going to be bringing a big black cloud just to position right over somebody's head. Be honest with ourselves, it's bound to induce a difference for the better. Any preacher will tell you, because you see your audience, you can see right into their faces and their eyes. And it can be easier or harder to preach depending on who is there on a given Lord's Day. There may be people who are a greater blessing or, conversely, a bigger hindrance than you could know. David, though he's told now, no longer are you going to be stepping out in the front line of the ranks of the children of Israel, no longer are you going to lead from the front on the field of battle. He was, despite that, still the light of the nation. We do not necessarily lose our value by losing some ability. Then there's another lesson coming out of the passage, not only about value, but about vigilance. A lesson about vigilance. Did you notice on the way through the Bible reading today how often we read of war? And it was war again or again a battle. We have it, for example, in verse 15. 
of 2 Samuel 21, moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. Verse 18. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Verse 19. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines. War again, again a battle. There was again a battle. The point is emphasized. There is continual conflict going on here. Now, we should expect the enemy to be no less than this. Constantly on the attack. Just like Israel here with the Philistines. In terms of our spiritual warfare, if we are the people of God today, there will always be another again. We can't lay our head on a pillow tonight and say, tomorrow will be on spiritual sunshine. No conflict, no battle, no maneuverings in which to engage. No, tomorrow there will be again a battle. There's no point in spiritual maturity that will mark the end of the conflict. That'll bring us to a stage where we can say, oh, start to free wheel from here on in and just flick over to automatic pilot because things are now easy. Back in World War I, we have the battles of the Somme and Verdun and Passion Deal and many others that were grinding battles, wars of attrition. All soldiers from all sides putting in themselves into the mincer. Colossal casualties. And people were saying, it'll be the war to end all wars whenever we sit back and consider the carnage that has happened here. There will be no nation on the face of God's earth that will want to be engaged in any kind of conflict like this again. But despite all the sacrifice, the world since has hardly seen a day of peace. Because man's heart never changes. Unless God intervenes by grace, and because his heart doesn't change, his history won't change. I think of those famous excited sentences that were spoken by the radio commentators. He's commenting in the final seconds of England's historic win in the football World Cup final in 1966, and we haven't heard the last of it ever since. But he was saying, they think it's all over. It is my we will never reach a stage where we can say in the spiritual battle, it's over. No more engagement. No more battles. No, like it was here, it came to pass after this, there was again a battle. There was again a battle. The Philistines had yet war again with Israel. The hymn writer said, when all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore just to be near, the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. But that won't happen until we reach heaven. Because, as another hymn writer put it, more fierce will grow the conflict. As nears our Lord's return, our Savior announced this, assured us of this. In Matthew 24 and other passages, battle is part and parcel of the Christian life. 
very interesting passage back in the book of Judges. The chapter 3, the verse 1 and 2, we're told there essentially that God left nations in the land of Canaan, the place of promise into which Israel was coming for their inheritance. He left warring nations there, antagonists in the place. Why? To prove Israel by them and to teach them war. An American preacher, Adrian Rogers, once said, there is no blessing without a battle. And while that might be a little incongruous thought and something difficult to assimilate into our minds and convince ourselves, well, that's true. It is true. There is no blessing without a battle. The enemy will be constantly on the attack. Another lesson that we have emerging here is not only one about value, one about vigilance, but another lesson about vulnerability. Vulnerability. We should be alert to this fact. Where will the enemy attack you? He will not be setting up the assault on your strongest area but he'll be getting you where you're weakest. That's where he will target. Those areas where we're weak. When did this giant Ishbi Benob move in for the kill with David? Well, look at verse 15 and verse 16 again. Verse 15, Moreover the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And, here's the point, David waxed faint. And Ishbi Benob, which was of the sons of the giant, the, spe- the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. Here's my chance. Opportunity knocks for Ishbi Benob. David is faint. He's at my mercy. Move in for the kill. That's what he did. When a football manager is doing his job thoroughly, he'll go on little reckes and watch the opposition that his team are going to be playing in the not-too-distant future. He'll watch them play somebody else. He'll sit there. He'll make notes. He'll get videos of their games. He'll analyze the tactics on an effort to find the weaknesses and note the strengths of that opposition coming up. And then he'll mold his own team to take advantage of the weaknesses in the opposition. Military generals, they'll do exactly the same. We have in Ukraine at the moment where there might be potentially a weaker point in the Russian front line. The Ukrainians are trying to find it and trying to explore it and exploit it. You can be sure the devil has a book on you. He knows when you're growing faint. He knows when you're vulnerable. He knows to what you are susceptible. He knows all the weak points. And none of us has this luxury of being strong right across the front. That's the truth. So we need to be aware of him. Should be remembered during the Second World War that you had all kinds of devious traitors working across the fields. 
Well, think of those working for the Nazis. We called them the fifth column men, men from within, treacherous against their own government and country. For example, the Vichy government in France, stirring up the people against the Allied forces during occupation in World War II. We have Lord Ho-Ho's voice, William Joyce the traitor, sounding out, as usual, cutting across a British wavelength, interfering, sending a message of defeat. The devil is intent on conquering the children of God. And he's looking for assistance from within, and he's got assistance. The old flesh is our incorrigible enemy. Assistance is ready-made. The fifth column is already installed within us. The infiltrator is there. The collaborator is present. The devil's pal in her bosom. The enemy within is already in position. That's why we need to be so vigilant. Because he's not there just to pressurize us, make life a little bit uncomfortable. He's there as Ishbi Benob was there to slay David. Vulnerability. But more than that, another lesson, not only about value, vigilance, vulnerability, there's a lesson about vitality here, a lesson about vitality because you probably notice, and it's something you need to consult the margin of your Bible to get the full picture about here, but we need to be wary of an old enemy with a new weapon. An old enemy coming with a new weapon. Verse 16, one of the things that caused Ishbi Benob to think, this is my moment. What a hero I'm going to be, emerging from the field, having killed the king, David. The Philistines, my people, will love me here. What gave him real confidence was, verse 16 tells us he was girded with a new sword. Now, you'll probably find the word sword in italics in your Bible, and the translators were right up front honest, saying, well, that word doesn't exactly appear in the original, so we have substituted what we think should be the proper word. There is actually no noun in the original four sword here. All that said is that this giant who fell on David did so with something new. Our translators have made it a sword. Something new. The point is, it was the newness of the thing that made him more formidable than before. Now, if we stay with the thought sword, new swords work. New weaponry works. Just think about Japan in World War II. They were going to fight a U.S. invasion of their territory to the last man, the last woman, the last child, and they were pretty fanatical. They were going to do that until the second atomic bomb was dropped on the city of Hiroshima. The Iraqis, Gulf Wars, they weren't going to give in under Saddam Hussein until they were forced to surrender in droves because smart bombs were unleashed against them and high-tech weaponry that they had no possible answer to. 
in the major field of conflict today, Ukraine already mentioned, they're looking for their F-16s, their Leopard Abrams tanks and Challenger tanks and others because they're thinking if we get the advantage in technology, then we can do what we want. The ancient Chinese general, Sun Tzu's, said, when I have won a victory, I do not repeat my tactics, but respond to circumstances in an infinite variety of ways. You'll not, in other words, he's saying, see me use the same tactics twice. I'll be coming with something new. The devil is no less clever. He has plenty of new weaponry. While the results that he's aiming for are the same, the labels and the packaging are changing all the time. We have good reason to look around us and cry with Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 and 9, there are many adversaries coming from all directions. But they're all formed ultimately into one united troop. They're marshaled by one leader. All the lines of communication run down into the same bunker occupied by the devil himself. And so today, with cunningly decorated yet cruelly destructive temptations, the devil comes. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says he thrusts his temptations against you like the torments to which... They put some of the early martyrs. When they laid them down, poured filthy water down their throats in such immense quantities that they were at last killed. And though they loathed the filthy liquid, yet their enemies continued to pour on and pour on. What an adversary he is. And this passage gives us a little bit of insight into his tactics. But we have another lesson. What about value, vigilance, vulnerability, vitality? What about viability here? Viability to keep the battle going, to fight through to victory, not to see David killed. What did we need here? Well, verse 15 and 6 in 17 of 2 Samuel 21, David waxed faint. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Suckered him. In other words, we need the help of others in the battle. Don't ever think you can do it yourself. Don't ever think in waging the war against the devil and in trying to take this neighborhood for Jesus Christ that we are going to be able to do it ourselves. We need the help of others, others in the battle. It's why we gather together. It's why it's dangerous that if you're able to be out at the house of God, you take the lazy option and you just tune in over the internet at home. That's a valuable commodity for those who are housebound, cannot be here. But if you have ability to be here, you should be here. You must be here. We need the help of others in the battle. Reader's Digest carried a story about a rather strong man, and he applied for a job with a removal company. 
Now, to see if the applicants knew how they were going to move heavy objects properly, every person who was interviewed, they were asked to move a very heavy safe. So each one coming in to be interviewed, all the applicants, he strained every muscle, he went bright red in the face, the veins were bulging in their arms, and they were all unsuccessful in moving that safe across the room. Finally, a big muscular guy came in, it was his turn, and he said, looking at that safe, are you joking? I can't move that thing by myself. He got the job. And we too would do well to learn that spiritual warfare is just too heavy a burden to carry alone. Even David here was indebted to the aid of Abishai. David waxed faint, but Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him. What do we find in other passages in the Bible? For example, we have in Ecclesiastes 4. The verse 9 and the verse 10, this counsel, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. In New Testament times, in Paul's great credit to the man by the name of Epaphroditus, he's saying, I could not have done it without him. And without other fellow laborers in the gospel as well. Philippians 2.25, Epaphroditus was my brother, Paul says, my companion in labor and fellow soldier, and he that ministered to my wants. David didn't fight alone, otherwise it would have been defeat. Paul did not fight alone, otherwise again it would have been defeat. Neither should you or I. We are, Paul insists, in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1, workers to Together with him. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week would be a waste of time if we weren't attacking it as workers together with him. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the following week in Sandy Row would be a waste of time and energy if we weren't doing it as workers together with him. Everything we do, it has to be done with this mindset and with this practical outlook. We are workers together with Him. Maybe you're in a situation now that isn't like David's here. But maybe you are the Abishai. And you know a David. And you can name that David or you can identify with their problem. That person you know is growing faint in the battle. The enemy, you can see him moving in for the kill on them, and that situation is crying out to you. You have the ability, as an Abishai, to get up, get out, go to them, and give them the help they need. Don't sit and spectate and allow defeat to come. Move quickly. How long has it been? Since when you've seen someone in need, you've actually gone and encouraged them along life's journey. Philip P. Bliss, we sang one of his famous hymns today, Hold the Fort 
For I am coming, what words of encouragement are. See the mighty host advancing, Satan leading on. Mighty men around us falling, courage almost gone. Fierce and long the battle rages, but our help is near. Why? Because onward comes our great commander. Cheer, my comrades, cheer. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still wave the answer back to heaven by thy grace. We will. We will. Final lesson. What about value we've seen? Vigilance, vulnerability, vitality, viability. Lesson about valor. A lesson about valor. We have an obligation, if we are Christ today, to cultivate the power of a godly influence. In 2 Samuel 21, verse 18 through to the verse 21, we are introduced one by one to another three servants of King David. So we have Abishai to begin with, then we have another three in addition to him, and they're named to everyone and described as a giant killer. Sibachai, Elhanon, Jonathan are their names. All three of them, giant killers, all three of them had come under the influence of that first man of God to pioneer giant killing in the nation. That was David himself. There seems to have been a nest of men of gigantic stature in the Philistine city of Gath. Brothers, near relatives of Goliath. But the example that David had shown in his encounter with Goliath when he was only a young man, when he was stopped from going near the battle himself, his influence on them had caused, encouraged others, run into the breach, fill the gap, take the place of this hero of the nation. So read in verse 18, it came to pass after this. That it was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushathite slew Saph, which was of the sons of the giants. Sibachai, we read about him again, one of the mighty men of David, listed in First Chronicles, the chapter eleven. It tells us they were those who strengthened themselves with him. Verse ten, verse twenty-six. They were valiant men. But they were deriving a lot of their valor and their enthusiasm from David himself. He has done it. Why can't we do it? And they did. We have another. Elhanon, verse 19, you read about him. There was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanon, the son of Jerorajim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gidite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Here's a man who had his roots in the same town as David. Came from Bethlehem as well. And growing up as a child in Bethlehem, do you not think his mom and his dad would have told him the stories of valor, of David's triumph over Goliath? He would have been the talk and the pride of the town. And here's a young man, Elhanon, growing up, coming through life, wanting to be a giant killer himself. It seems as though those who were around David caught what he had. 
Are we those kind of people that are radiating spiritual energy? The spirit's energy itself influencing others. I think of the great counselor, the great king, the great authority that came out of Bethlehem, Micah 5 and 2, thy Bethlehem he frat out of thee, shall come he who shall be ruler in Israel. And if you and I are looking for an example, we must look higher and further than David and look to Christ. As Paul tells us in Hebrews 12, consider him, lest ye be wearied like David was and faint in your minds. He is our great commander and leader. But we have Jonathan here as well, a third mighty man of David. Verse 20, you'll read about him. There was yet the battle in Gath. Of course there was. Where was a man of great stature that had in every hand six fingers and every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. He also was born to the giant and like his uncle. We find that Jonathan who's the son of Shimea, the brother of David, who slays this giant like his uncle, bearing the name of David's closest friend, Jonathan, grew up hearing the stories again of his victorious uncle, who aspired to those victories in his own life. So again, another character around David who caught what he had his zeal and enthusiasm for the cause were infectious. The 22nd verse of this 21st chapter summarizes it all. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and notice how this is put. We've just heard who killed these giants. We've been given their names. But what are we told here? They fell by the hand of David. And by the hand of his servants, David didn't kill any of them. But they fell by the hand of David. The Bible says, how? Because through David, God had raised up and influenced a generation of giant killers. And it may be that you're saying, well, because of ill health, I have to bow out of the work of God, at least in a very active, visible role. But you can have an influence like David on those coming through after you who can do the same and bigger exploits than what you ever did for God. There's a bit of a picture here, I think, of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And how they're gathered around and they're all glowing with his example, living his influence, having this personal warm attachment Well, what do we read? In Psalm 68 and 1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let also them that hate him flee from before him. We are told trustworthy generals double the value of troops. And as we run to the standard of the Lord Jesus, the captain of our salvation, And as we look on to him, as those Christian soldiers onward, Christian soldiers, as we're inspired by his example, as we live in the value of his victory at Calvary, 
We can be a giant killer, and we can inspire others to be great giant killers too. Tell me, what are you doing today for Christ? What does God want you to do? Are you doing what He wants you to do?